Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. This episode of How to Win an Election is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the only major UK airport owned solely for community benefit. The airport is the major employer in the region, supporting more than 27,000 jobs, and its contribution to local charities are 20 times more per passenger than any other UK airport. To find out more about the UK's most socially impactful airport, visit lutonrising.org.uk. there in front of me was a pot of yogurt. And I said, you're just keeping that in case I get into a scandal. I remember feeling deeply assured and kind of crushing on Peter. Oh, thank you. It was before I met you, Peter. Well, welcome along again. I'm Matt Chorley, and this is How to Win an Election. Uh, with all, all, all remotes this week uh, from various different parts of the world, uh, I, we are joined as ever by Peter Manson. Peter, where are you in the world? I am in Ditchley, North Oxfordshire. So those, those enormous oil paintings behind you are not yours? Not in my own home, no. Very good, very good. Daniel Finkelstein, where are you? I'm in Pinner, but I don't actually believe, Peter, I think that those actually are his pictures. He just doesn't want anyone to uh, to think that at his house. Things really did get better under New Labour, Danny. (laughs) (laughs) It would be much grand if it really was Peter's house. And uh, Polly, where are you in the world? Polly McKenzie. I'm on 43rd Street in Manhattan uh, in a hotel room. Okay, fine, you win. Uh, you're in New York, which uh, Danny and I will be after we've set sail across the Atlantic this week, which is where we're off to on the uh, the Times and Sunday Times Cheltenham Literature Festival at sea. So that's very exciting. Now, before we get on with what we're going to talk about this week, uh, we've got a question uh, from Catherine for you, Peter. Last week, you told us all about the story of how Gordon Brown invited you into number 10, put aside your differences, having not spoken for 10 years, asked you to join his government. You explained you were called into the was it the state, the wood paddled state dining room. The, the, of the, dining small, room. St- the small the, state dining room. Only the small state dining room. Um, uh, and you were presented with a curly sandwich, a banana and a yogurt. And Catherine says, did he eat the lacklustre lunch? I ate everything bar the sandwich. Oh, very good. Everything about the sandwich. Fa- couldn't face the sandwich, but the yogurt was delicious, and and I was so hungry I had to eat the banana. I'm incredibly impressed at the recall, Matt. You know, I can't remember a single detail like that. Maybe he didn't eat the yogurt, and we'll never know. That's the beauty of uh, <laughs> that's the beauty. Just say, just say it with confidence. Anyway, as we know, as I always said, new labour was built on detail, <laughs> or just saying things which weren't true with confidence. Right, let's move on uh, to what we want to do this week. Uh, this week, obviously, the autumn statement. This week is a great opportunity. <laughs> this week's not funny, statement. Danny. It wasn't that funny. It was very funny. Sorry, Peter. <laughs> it doesn't get much fun in Pinner. This week's autumn statement is a great opportunity for the parties to wheel out their slogans. A government prepared to make long-term decisions so that we can build a brighter future. Britain must, Britain can, Britain will get its future back. It's the fair deal the British people deserve. 
So those are the big three uh, slogans that I suspect we'll hear a lot of this week from Rishi Sunak and Jeremy Hunt, but also uh, Keir Starmer and Rachel Weaves and uh, whoever speaks for financial matters for um, the Lib Dems. We'll never know. Um, before we come to the detail of those, uh, Polly, do slogans matter? I think they can matter. Um, they probably don't really filter through to every single member of the electorate. But they're best when they actually encapsulate something that is distinctive about your platform. There's something about the ones that you've just shared that they feel quite samey. Like fairness is one of those words. I mean, who's not in charge of fairness, right? Like it's the long term decisions. Much better, I think, when they crystallize a choice, um, an idea like uh, you know, that we're choosing to move forward or that, in fact, the 1929 general election, when my great grandfather was elected uh, as an MP in Berwick, uh, the Conservatives had a slogan of safety first. Even that, right? It's a choice. Uh, and I, I think slogans are best when they encapsulate something meaningful that you're actually trying to say as a political party. Well, we've done a little bit of polling on these uh, slogans to see what the public think. Uh, so the the long-term decisions for a brighter future. Actually, 40% of the public like that. Uh, It lands uh, better with uh, Lib Dems and Remainers than it does with uh, Leavers. That's the Conservative slogan. The flip side, let's get Britain's future back. Labour's slogan, 35% are positive about that, but much higher amongst Leave voters and people who voted Conservative in oh. 2019, half of 2019 Conservative voters like "Let's Get Britain's Future Back." So it's interesting that Peter, are they both addressing really their weaknesses, or are they identifying their their target audiences? Really, really important because they are Labour's target audience. I mean, I think that long-term decisions. Frankly, I mean, it sounds like the title of an academic dissertation or the beginning of a submission by the civil service to to a minister. I, I don't, I don't know how forty percent like that. But the point about getting Britain's future back is that it does have some power. It has some emotion, and that's why it, why it landed with its target audience. What do you think of them, Danny? Well, it's very interesting that that slogan works with levers because it's actually a failure of political analysis on my part. When you raised it with me uh, on one of your programmes, Matt, I said I thought that it would appeal to Remainers who thought they'd lost their future with Brexit. But clearly the word back is important um, in that. Uh, and there's quite a lot of people who want anything back that they had before. It's a very strong emotion. I mean, all these slogans will have been tested uh, they won't be used unless they're tested. Uh, so they'll be tested in focus groups. They'll be uh, they'll be tested um, quantitatively as well. So they'll know this, and that's why it is interesting that obviously uh, Peter's right. That is a key market for Labour, and clearly they've tested it and discovered that that market likes that slogan. Um, but but it's you know with the Tory slogan, uh, long term decisions. People like the idea of long term decisions. I just note that they've ditched the uh, long term uh, decision strategy they had at the party conference, uh, or certainly the accompanying political strategy, only after a few weeks. So it didn't turn out to be a long term decision. Yeah, I must admit, I was quite struck because I remember us having that conversation, Danny. But yeah, thir- about thirty percent of Remainers like "Let's Get Britain's Future Back." Forty five percent of Leavers, and it's almost exactly the opposite for the Tory one. Much more popular amongst Remainers than Leavers, so maybe there is that sort of sense of uh, of crossover. Uh, about twenty five percent like for a fair deal for the Lib Dems, which is. 
fine. But as you were saying, Polly, basically nobody knows who any of these uh, belong to. Uh, uh, only about one in five could identify the correctly the uh, the slogans for the main parties, Conservatives, Labour, a bit less of the Lib Dems. Everyone could spot a fairer, greener country belong to the Green Party because it's got the name of their party in it. Is there an argument, Polly, for just hammering away at slogans? But actually, the, you, you must have got sick of it when you were working in number 10 for the Lib Dems. The Tories banging on about long-term economic plan to the point it became a sort of panto joke line. But clearly it worked in 2015. It was like we haven't finished the job. You know, Britain's on the right track. Don't turn back election for them. Well, it's the core rule of communications, isn't it? When you are bored to the back teeth of saying something, that's when it maybe has started to filter through. Uh, it's the same with uh, leafleting. You know, if you are getting pushback on the doorstep, don't you dare put any more leaflets through my door. Again, that that's when perhaps you're starting to have delivered enough enough leaflets. So once you've landed on a message that works for people, you do have to get really boring and thorough about it. The long-term economic plan is forwards. Long-term decisions for a, a, I can't even remember what the last word. Brighter future. Brighter future. That's, I mean, it's just too many words, isn't it? I, 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 I'm not sure how you could hammer that without just getting your tongue gargled. Tongue? You know what I mean. You see? <laughs> I can't even talk about it without uh, turning it into a tongue twister. And, and you just know that people on the election campaign, they'll be, they'll, they'll, they won't say brighter, they'll say fairer future, and then somebody will turn that into a controversy, and somebody will, you know, it, it's too complicated. The point, you know, Matt, about a, a slogan at a party conference or an election is that it's got to enable you to turn it into a narrative. If you can make a speech around it and if you can develop it and apply it to this policy or that and if you can whip people up and the audience into a sort of emotion that's what that's why it's so important you've got to you've got to make it perform for you but what then about danny when we're looking at you know we've got the autumn statement in the middle of this week there's a tension because if the tory strategy is long-term decisions for a brighter future um, you know, steady as she goes, David Cameron's back. It's just like the good old days. Yet there's clearly pressure on Jeremy Hunt that they've got to do stuff now. So the long-term decision strategy might be, well, we, I think we can do tax cuts the year after next and the one after that. But lots of angry Tory MPs want things to happen now. And they want things that they're worried about rather than what the public are worried about. So it becomes inheritance tax and tax thresholds rather than the things which poll better. So there's a constant tension there. At this point in the cycle, do you think Jeremy Hunt should be doing the thing that keeps Tory MPs happy? Or have they got to start that, the, the dreadful phrase, pitch rolling towards a general election and making sure that this message finally now hangs together? The problem with the idea that you're going to make the decisions that no one has made for 30 years is there's usually a good reason why they didn't make them. Uh, and uh, it's hardly likely that you've come along with a load of obvious things that everyone likes uh, that are quite easy to make, but no one made them before you did and suddenly it occurred to you to make them. Uh, and so I think that, you know, the moment I heard that whole idea, uh, that I thought to myself, well, that's going to be very difficult to find proof points of, and they've got a couple, and obviously HS2 was the most important of those, and then they had the smoking but I wondered about the others. So actually, I'm not sure that it's going to even raise itself uh, when Jeremy Hunt speaks, just because uh, I wonder what it is that he can do in his spring statement that hasn't been done, uh, for th that nobody else thought of doing for 30 years, um, but was actually quite easy to do or possible to do. So I, I, I think um, 
probably the choosing of David Cameron, which makes the whole idea of having of making decisions that were not made for thirty years impossible to pursue, uh, will be a moment where they'll quietly move away from that, which is what, of course, Peter predicted in in the first of our podcasts. And Peter, what do Labour need to do this week? Uh, because we got quite a lot of policy actually from Rachel Reeves in a widely applauded speech at party conference. One suspects that for every proactive policy from the Tories, we'll probably see some traps left for Labour. Does Jeremy Hunt max out all the spending this year to put the squeeze on uh, afterwards if Labour inherit uh, the, the the nation's finances? What message do Labour need to try and land? Two messages. One, fiscal discipline, that they're going to be fiscally responsible, whatever the pressures. And secondly, that they have a plan for the future, that they're going to build, build, build. We're going to grow, 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 and that we will do everything we can to raise levels of public and private investment, mainly private investment in the economy, because that's what's going to turn things around in the long term. Now, the trap, I think, is over inheritance tax. And I somehow don't feel that that is such a trap. I don't know what Labour would do in response to a a future a hypothecated cut in inheritance tax. It would be a promise for after the election, uh, no doubt. I know people like George Osborne are very fond of saying, "Oh, you know, this is a real, this is a real teaser. It really, you know, it goes under the surface. It gets the votes. It really tickles people. They feel a great sense of aspiration. And even if they're not rich enough ever to pay any inheritance tax, nonetheless, they aspire to be." I think things at the moment are just too serious, too dire. The cost of living pressures are too great. I just think people are finding day-to-day living a struggle. And the idea that they might, you know, sometime in the future aspire to paying inheritance tax and therefore will vote in favour of a projected cut in it is too far-fetched. I don't think it is a trap. What do you think, Polly? Do you think they, they will or won't do it? It feels to me like there's a judgment here about do they want to prop up their support with the public or with Tory MPs? who do fret about inheritance tax, I think it's very important, even though there was, a, there was a quote in the Sunday Times a few weeks ago, there was a story about this, where a sort of special advisor or source said the quiet bit out loud. They said, nobody actually really pays inheritance tax, but everyone is worried that they might. So that's why they should do something about it, even though it actually cost them loads of money, even though most people wouldn't be caught by it anyway. What do you think? Well, I think there's a ghost here, which is the ghost of when George Osborne announced that big inheritance tax cut policy and sort of scared Gordon Brown out of holding an early general election whilst he was still really popular. Uh, and, and so the Conservatives sort of deeply believe that this is the way uh, both to appeal to voters and to somehow lay a really clever earthen trap for, for the Labour Party. Uh, I, just because it appeals to Conservative MPs, that doesn't necessarily make it a bad thing in sort of tactical terms, because holding your party together, your team together, so that you can campaign effectively is, in fact, a really important thing to do for success in an election campaign. But it, it, it still does need to work for voters. And it, it does feel, I think Peter's right, a bit like an indulgence. Plus, you know, the reality is that it's terrible policy. Uh, We have a hugely divided society. A trillion pounds or so is going to be passed on from uh, the the generation in their kind of 70s and 80s, probably to people in their 50s and 60s. Uh, It's sort of deeply unhelpful uh, economic 
uh, impact of that. And of course, what it means is that increasingly people who are able to inherit from their family will have good lives and people who can't don't have access to that trillion pounds, increasing divide. And that causes enormous harms for all of us. So the indulgence of doing this sets them on the path to, you know, probably much more harmful uh, situation for the actual country in the future, which is the thing that really irritates me the most about it. Danny, what do you think? Will they go for long-term decisions for a brighter future or short-term traps for Labour to fall into? <laughs> uh, <clears throat> I, I think it'll be actually kind of neither, really. I don't, I don't think that um, there are very many things they can do that were such big traps for Labour. Um, and I don't think there are very many things that are available that are long-term decisions that haven't been made for 30 years that they're suddenly going to make, as I said. I think they'll end up uh, doing things that slump somewhat in the middle. I, I rather think inheritance is a budget measure. Maybe it is a spring statement, uh, an awesome statement measure, um, and goes with the spending uh, plans. But we'll we'll see. It's been heavily reported, obviously. Um, but uh, I... I you know, but I do wonder about that. But but I don't. So I think that they're going to uh, end up doing sort of quite steady uh, things that head in the direction they want to go without being very dramatic. Well, we wait and see. Obviously, the uh, the autumn statement happening on Wednesday. Up next, we'll focus more on slogans. What's the best and actually more importantly, worst slogan you've come across? And are slogans better when you set them to music? Uh, we've got some of the best campaign anthems. Of well, actually, the dim and distant past because they don't do them anymore. Maybe we should start a campaign to bring them back. This is Matt Chorley with Peter Manderson, Polly McKenzie, and Daniel Finkelstein bringing you how to win an election. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. This episode of How to Win an Election is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. This is Matt Chorley bringing you How to Win an Election with Polly McKenzie, Peter Manison and Daniel Finkelstein. This week, taking a look at slogans. Uh, we want to talk about campaign slogans. And then David Murphy, listener David Murphy, emailed in 
says, this question probably isn't very enlightening. Well, we'll be the judge of that, David, but it could be entertaining. What is the worst slogan the panel has come across? I'll get the ball rolling with two, both from the centre-right and both from 2005. The Conservatives, are you thinking what we're thinking? Uh, which, of course, was uh, Michael Howard's. And the Ulster Unionists, decent people, vote Ulster Unionist. I'd also like to give an honourable mention to Tim Lemon, the Ulster Unionist candidate in East Belfast in 2001, whose slogan was, the future's bright, the future's lemon. Can the panel think of worse slogans than those? How important are slogans? We've talked a little bit about how important slogans are. Um, uh, Daddy, uh, given your... Uh, I don't think you are to blame, actually, for the two. You were involved in 2005, and are you no. thinking what we're thinking, were you? So, I think that is actually an excellent slogan. It's just not a very good campaign. So what uh, slogans do is they summarise what you want the campaign to be about, uh, what your basic message is, uh, what your presumption is about the electorate. And the Conservative Party in 2005 ran a campaign in which they put forward a number of sort of simple propositions about um, crime and, uh, you know, the economy and migration. And they... Uh, felt that that um, those kind of that directness would win an election. I was by that point already of the view that that wasn't going to be successful. Michael had believed very strongly it could be, uh, and uh, he found a slogan that summarised it very well. Um, the, the 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 problem was that uh, people probably weren't thinking quite those things, uh, and so I, I thought, and a bit like um, <laughs> the other slogan, which was uh, about the Democratic Unionist Party, it certainly summarises what they think about themselves and maybe what some of their voters think about. So I think we have to distinguish between a bad slogan and a bad idea for a campaign. Um, As a bad slogan, um, I would say the 1983 Labour uh, slogan, which was think positive, uh, act positive, vote Labour. Correct me if I've got that slightly wrong, Peter, but I think that's right. Um, And uh, I I think that that, that is even grammatical. Act positive, vote positive vote positive well it's you know a very persuasive recommendation in favor of michael foot i don't you know, know what i'm not about. sure it, um, <laughs> so i i think it was uh really quite a poor slogan because i'm not sure what it means and as my friend andrew cooper lord cooper now um kept saying it's not even grammatical he really bored me all the way through that campaign by continually going on about that danny isn't the 2005 michael howard uh, slogan, you know, are you thinking what we're thinking? Wasn't that rather a sly way of trying to inject the issue of race and immigration no, they, into the campaign? It wasn't sly. If you remember, there was a slowly mounting drumbeat that gathered pace during the Conservatives' campaign, which was only then seen off, I think, in week three or four by a trenchant speech by Tony Blair when he went to Dover. And he answered and took the arguments about immigration head on. And that was the end of Michael Howard's sly attempt to inject race into the campaign. Well, it wasn't a sly attempt. I mean, it was uh, it was completely open. Uh, that was one of the things that they were talking about. And by the way, it's obviously a legitimate issue. Um, uh, and um, it's, it, it's perfectly reasonable to discuss it. So it wasn't sly. Um, as it happens, I dissented from the centrality it had in the campaign. And interestingly enough, and, and, and so in that way, I would agree with you uh, but in that uh, and interestingly enough um david cameron did too and it produced actually as a slight distancing between uh 
David Cameron and um, and and Michael Howard during that campaign because he uh, basically refused to put the emphasis on immigration that um, that. Michael Howard wanted him to. That's a definition of a bad election slogan, one that divides your party rather than unites it and sends it into battle. <laughs> yeah, if the, if the party leader and one of his front benches and former spads comes out against it, that's probably not a great sign. The thing that I'm trying to distinguish between is a bad slogan and a bad choice of campaign. The, the, this is a, this is this is a an extremely good piece of slogan work, capturing the very essence of what Michael Howard wanted to say. It's just that I don't think he was trying to say the right things. Polly, I want to bring you in because your rule that five words was too many. Uh, when you were in number 10, uh, after five years of the coalition, the Lib Dems went into the election with stronger economy, full stop, fairer society, full stop, opportunity for everyone, which even that's even more words than with the words that you said were too many. And that was your that was your doing. I mean, not directly my personal doing, just to be clear. I was more on the 30,000 words of the manifesto. Uh, But but so often uh, when it it doesn't make sense, it's because you actually are trying to stitch together a coalition of people who don't really agree uh, with each other. And and that's where, where Danny's right about, you know, the the 2005 Michael Howard slogan is is simply that it crystallised in a coherent way everything that they were trying to say. The Liberal Democrats 2015 were unable to crystallise everything they were trying to say in a few short words because we were unsure really what we were trying to say and trying to hold together a lot of very wounded, uh, fragile uh, people and, and messages. And obviously it, it, it didn't work. On uh, Matt, on the, princip- the poly principle of three words are better than uh, five, the most brilliant conservative slogan ever was in 1978-79, Labour isn't working. I mean, in one, in three words, you had Britain is broken. You can do something about it by voting these people out. You can vote instead for competence and you'll feel much better about it when you wake up the following morning. I mean, it, it started in 78, not 79. And it went on. And by the way, it went, kept rolling on against us during the 80s and into the 90s. We were still, we were still campaigning against and doing something about that slogan, even in the 1990s. Well, it's interesting because uh, I, it I remember in the, in the 1997 election, we kept on being presented with adverts from our communication team. And they would always unveil them with, this is the new Labour isn't working uh, some of, and some of these adverts, I'm afraid, were really poor. There was an extraordinary one uh, with a picture of Tony Blair and a phone bill, and it and the slogan was Tony and Bill. It was a play on Tony Blair and Bill Clinton. It was completely incomprehensible. Um, and each one of these uh, quite incomprehensible <laughs> adverts was uh, was said to be the new uh, Labour isn't working. But interestingly enough. The, the the slogan that we did end up with became quite well known in that election, which was "New Labour, New Danger," uh, 1997. The, the problem with that slogan was that although it summarised the idea of the campaign, we could never agree what the new danger was because the part of the idea was, you know, that there'd be a new danger on Europe, but Ken Clark didn't want that. So um, it, it, it did, you know, uh, Peter said earlier about the splitting the party it did split the party so i think there's a different that you know new labor new danger i think is a clever slogan you remember what happened to it though yes of course it wasn't actually 1997 it was 1996 and it was launched on august the first a great sort of 
artillery bombardment of the Labour Party in that uh, summer. And advertising hoardings across the country were bought up by the Conservative. And you had these Blair with this sort of these sort of demon eyes uh, coming out of these uh, posters, New Labour, uh, New Dangers. And it was, of course, about, you know, the reality behind New Labour. The reality behind Blair is something you've got to be frightened of. And I must say, I was a bit frightened. I was sort of the campaign director. I was at Millbank at the time. Everyone else, of course, had gone off on holiday. Tony was in Tuscany and Alistair was in the south of France and I was just left there manning the barricades against what was an almighty great bombardment and I said to them um, we have got to find a bishop to denounce this advertising campaign these these demonized and after a long search we turned up thank goodness we did the bishop of Oxford uh, who described the advertising campaign as satanic and it was dead in the water from that moment on. <laughs> I, I was shown this advert, and I, everything that they, every time that you do an advert, the director of research, which is what I have, has to be shown uh, any policy content to ensure that you're happy to say those things, that you sign off, that the claim is true. And I was shown this, and I remember telling Steve Hilton, who showed it to me, um, I said to him, you know what, I'm a bit worried about this. I don't want to uh, win a prize for an advert and lose in a landslide. And those, both of those things happened. Uh, the, the New Labour, New Dangers was completely knocked for six in any case by the best slogan in the history of the Labour Party, which was New Labour, New Britain. But the story behind that, by the way, is that it was nearly killed uh, at birth. There was, it was in 1994, uh, not 1996 or 1997, and it was coined to coincide with Tony's first big party conference speech, when, of course, he was going to unveil his decision, his desire uh, to rewrite Clause 4 of the party's constitution. But there was a big argument about it and whether we should go with it or not, because some people were very nervous and thought it was a bit audacious, it's a bit premature, it's a bit presumptuous to just sort of describe suddenly a, a Labour Party which had only been in, you know, with uh, with a leadership by Tony Blair of only a couple of months as New Labour, uh, New Britain. Eventually, um, I remember we got to about a couple of weeks before the party conference when it was going to be unveiled. And a woman called Jackie Stacey, who was the queen then of Labour Party conference uh, presentation, phoned me up in complete anguish and said, I cannot get a final sign-off from the leader's office from this. Blair's team seem to be divided. Those who like it, those who don't. Those who think it's too risky, those who think we should uh, go with it. You've got to take a decision. So I said, well, Jackie, what do you think? You know, well, I like it. I said, fine. I'll tell Tony he should have it and we'll go with it. But then there was another argument about whether the N in the new should be capital N or <laughs> lowercase n. I kid you not. This went on for another 24 hours. Tony was a capital N man. He wanted capital N new Labour, capital N new Britain. And I said, no. It's a bit presumptive. That is going too far. We'll have a lowercase, <laughs> a lowercase n, and a lowercase n, and we only changed it to an uppercase n in 1997. New Labour, new life for Britain. Um, Polly, could I invite you to heap praise on Dominic Cummings? That in the oh, the, the, the actually the thing that he is very good at. You, it, clearly, it's not running a government, but. Nailing down, take back control, get Brexit done, 
you know, take back control was up against. Can you remember the Britain Stronger in? I mean, even Britain Stronger in Europe is a terrible name for campaign against vote leave. Do you remember what the Britain Stronger in Europe slogan was? No. Stronger, safer, and better off. Again, because they couldn't really decide. Is it yeah. strength? Is it safety? Is it? But 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 the, the, actually, it is a huge skill. Take back control. Get Brexit done. Phrases that you you didn't enjoy, uh, but they they are they capture in part because they're the sort of things that a normal person would say, rather than the sort of gobbledygook of a of a whiteboard session which has got out of hand. I mean that's exactly right, isn't it? it, it it's it, it's got to have two things. One, it's got to genuinely sort of be the laser point of all that you're trying to say, and it's got to be in real human speak and. Uh, so few slogans manage to achieve that and if you can capture it you can then you sort of you dominate the whole of the election campaign you know get brexit done was amazingly clever because for those people who wanted brexit it was a a promise that it would happen but for those people who sort of didn't care or frankly were just sick of the entire thing toxifying and distracting us from all of the important stuff like how to run the economy or how to make the NHS uh, operate properly. It was just a promise that this conversation would be over. And and that's what's magical, right, is if you can get two actually opposing groups of people to somehow feel a sense of connection in the same sort of words. But also feel a sense of emotional yeah. power. I mean, that's why Obama's Yes, We Can was so brilliant. And, you know, when you voted for that, you woke up the next day feeling really brilliant. And then Trump's Make America Great Again. I mean, who couldn't vote for it? Who who would be against making America great again? It just makes you want, feel wonderful just doing the act of voting for but it. But they're also really good because they are calls to action, right? Like it's there's an active verb in there. Yeah. Make, yeah. Uh, vote for change. Absolutely. It, it's, it's, it's the idea of you as the voter being mobilised for... Uh, for positive change and and that's very inspiring for for getting out the vote and so often in in these real change elections you will see a a, a change in the number of people who feel mobilized to vote and and those active verbs i think are really valuable for that and i suppose let's get britain's future back is sort of it's try to find yeah. you know that slipstream uh take back control make america great again yeah my first general election was 2005 and the Liberal Democrats then, they did really well, right? That was their absolute peak. So maybe slogans don't matter enormously, but the the slogan then was just 10 reasons to vote Liberal Democrat. I mean, if you really can't crystallise your campaign at all, it's just kind of a list of 10 things. It's such a symbol for me of what the Liberal Democrats were at that time, which was just a, a coalition of good, strong local candidates kind of saying different things in all of those different constituencies. And and I guess the slogan was good in Danny's way because it, it was a perfect manifestation of what the party was trying to say, which was lots of different things in lots of different ways. Uh, I'm just going to, before we move on, I just want to throw into the mix of the worst campaign uh, for the 2015 election. The DUP's uh, slogan was step not back. <laughs> And I don't, I don't know what to them. step not back. Them. I don't know what it means, but anyway, there we are. Right up next, are slogans even better when you set them to music? We 
We've had another email. This is from Charlie. Uh, Charlie O'Neill says, uh, there's a question for all three. What is the effect of an election campaign song? Do they add much to a campaign? Pretty much everyone uh, remembers uh, things can only get better. So should any party hoping to be re-elected or elected next year think about adopting one? Thank you. Labour Party activist and Peter Mandelson superfan, who knew such a thing existed, but we wow. found him. He's called Charlie O'Neill. There we are. There's one. There's one. <laughs> uh, which got us thinking, and we'll talk a bit about things can only get better and how that came about in a moment, Peter, but it got us thinking about election songs. And Polly, you in particular have got... A deep personal trauma. Yes. So um, this is, we'll kick off with this. This is from the 2010... Lib Dem election campaign. This is Will Be the Change. Come on, come on, Polly. Polly, you're not joining in and singing. <laughs> this is so terrible. I'm, it doesn't even stun, a... right? Like... <laughs> Peter, do you like it? This is a complete rip-off of my 1989 <laughs> Birmingham Rally European Elections Triumph when we launched our policy review, which we called Meet the Challenge, Make the change. Don't worry, and Peter, we... I've got it. Let me just change the record on the record. Have player. you, have you got it? Oh, here we go. I love it. This is... I mean, what? That's isn't it absolutely no! wonderful? No! I don't know. Yes, no! it is. No, I, no. I'm sorry. I don't know what Just I would love to know. I would love to know. I'd love to know, Matt, the kid who sang that in 1989 in Birmingham. I'd love to know what happened to him. He was absolutely Can brilliant. you remember his name? His name's gone out of my head. I'm we'll sorry. Try, we'll I can Daddy, Daddy, but well, let's just. So we then asked Daddy to recommend a song. And Daddy chose one from the 2001 general election because Mike Batt, best known for writing the Wombles theme tune, was called in by William Hayes' campaign. Now, honestly, this is the most intense investigative journalism I've done in a very long time trying to get hold of this. I ended up having to contact Mike Batt himself uh, because he was the only person who still had a copy of it. And he he said we could play it on condition that we make clear he doesn't support any political party anymore. And this is purely an historical relic uh, to share with the nation. So this is, well, it was called Heartland, and then it was, I think it was then renamed Gravitas in the hope that he could sell it on to other people and people wouldn't remember it was. So this is a magic, this is, this is the Action Man version. This is William Hagen full Action Man mode. Now, sadly, there, there are no lyrics to this. It's just got sort of end of game show vibes. 
say good night, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> Danny, what is it about this song you think that didn't swing it for William <laughs> Hague in two thousand and one? I mean, I think as it happens, I do genuinely think Mike Bat is a genius, and I think this is brilliant. This piece of music, but um, when it was presented to me, I was told. We're really lucky. The the man who is behind Bond, the the group, has made us some music. And I I said, isn't that Mike Bat? And Amanda Patel said to me, yes, it is. And I said, everyone's just going to say we've got the music from the Wombles, obviously. And uh, that is exactly indeed what happened. So it just goes to show how much optimism there can be in politics that people would think that. It's interesting. I, I've now, having listened to Meet the Challenge, Make the Change, Peter, of course, a new theory about why you lost the 1992 election unexpectedly at the last minute. Uh, it, it wasn't Neil Kinnock's rally speech. It was the music. <laughs> they remembered the music from 1989. I think that must Matt, have been please it. please send it to me. It means so much to me because we went on. We went on to win the European elections in 1989. It was the first time Labour had won a national election since 1979. That's how that's how big it was. And it was all down to meet the yes. challenge, make the change. Now, what about things can only get better as flagged by Charlie? Because actually, most people, if we asked them what was the slogan of 97, they wouldn't say New Labour, New Britain. They'd say things could only get better. Yeah, they would. I mean, I, Fred, I don't know who's brilliant discovery it was whose idea it was but it certainly put us into a, a very very much better groove than the one we'd been in in the 1980s when if you remember uh, Billy Bragg you know and it, singing songs about socialism which certainly cheered up the party membership you know provided us with our with our lyrics but uh, things can only get better thank you very much Adireem and it's still played at, it's a, it's the anthem of New Labour. I mean, it's still played at party conferences, Christmas parties and weddings, including my own, by the way. And George Osborne. The it was played at your Hall. wedding. Yep. The moment, the and George Osborne's, the moment the registrar pronounced us, you know, married, he struck up, things can only get better. Polly, did you have will be the change at your wedding? No, I, I did have Nick Clegg at my wedding. Uh, I think it was the vicar's happiest moment, not when Nick Clegg turned up at his church, but when the security people came to, like, check out the church beforehand. That was very exciting. And, and Nick, uh, egregiously for the environment, arrived at my wedding by helicopter. He had to interrupt a rugby match on what's called the Grow, which is the big field in, in my hometown of Filth Wells, uh, in order to land his helicopter. But amazingly enough, the rugby players were delighted and shook his hand uh, and then went back to their match once the helicopter had gone. I didn't have any politicians at my wedding. I did have a letter from Gordon Brown, one from David Cameron, one from Jeremy Brown, who was then the Lib Dem MP for Taunton, and a postcard from Timmy Mallet. So I think, I you think win, I, overall you win. I probably win. <laughs> you, you made the challenge. Well, I think that we should start a campaign now to bring back the election song. I think it's the thing that we've been missing from uh, uh, just to see. Uh, if anything, we should just get we should get um, Keir Starmer to readopt "Meet the Challenge, Make the Change" because Peter, I've never seen Peter look so happy uh, <laughs> than when we were playing that. <laughs> it was brought back such great memories. I don't know. I think it was a real. Well, I was going to say it was a tonic for the nation. Actually, it was a tonic for me, and I love it. Still do. <laughs> We should make the leaders themselves sing the campaign song, though. I mean, the, yes. the 2010 uh, Lib Dem song was actually sung by the Lib Dem Choir, which was a bunch of staff who gathered together. I, I'm not sure if just in the headquarters or in a recording studio, but it would have been much better if we'd made Nick Clegg sing it. And, and we could just turn the whole election campaign, really, into something that's a bit more like Britain's Got Talent. Well, we're going to end this week on a musical note, because everyone's obviously been enjoying the 
uh, how to win an election theme tune. And some listeners got in touch and said, could they have the music so they could do their own version? And we've heard from uh, the uh, there are a, a jazz group, Nathan and Lorenzo. They are the Soho Live Studios Composer Collective. And uh, they play regularly at the Piano Bar in Soho. They've done two versions of us. Uh, George Hudson said this in. Uh, they've done us a chill-out version. Uh, so if if anyone wants to get in touch and they want the music, they can email us howtowinatthetimes.co.uk. If you want to send in your, uh, your, send us your email address and we can send you the sheet music. So here we are. This is How to Win an Election Chill-Out Mix. It does sound a bit like what one of us dies uh, at the end of uh, <laughs> at the end of the tribute episode before we move on and quickly replace you. I, I'm not sure that it's got enough emotional punch, Matt. Is that is that is that what? I love that. Oh, please send it. We I will. I'll send it to you. If you know who sang that at the original Labour Party covers, get in touch. How to win at thetimes.co.uk. Uh, thanks so much for listening. I've been Matt Jolly with Polly McKenzie, Daniel Finkelstein, and Peter Madison. That was How to Win an Election. John Redwood trying to sing the Welsh national anthem. That's what I. That's the vibe I'm getting. You, you can't remember the words, Peter. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.